0: Hello and welcome to another podcast of Father and Joe. I'm Joe Rocky here with Father Boniface Hicks. And Father, today's topic is going to be about the fact that you guys just elected another abbot. And since I really don't know the right questions to ask,
1: I'm just going to give you the floor right off the bat here. We'll go from there. Great. Thanks, Joe. Yeah, it's such a unique thing in the life of the church that... uh... A lot of people wouldn't encounter it, except that you know there have been press releases and things like that that come out and indicates the new abbot, the 12th abbot of St. Vincent Arch Abbey, uh, now Arch Abbot Martin Bartle. We just elected him on Tuesday. And uh, it's, a, it's an interesting thing. It starts to, you know, you and I have talked before, Joe, about different religious orders and talked a little bit about those spiritualities. I'm a Benedictine and people often know Franciscans or Jesuits or Dominicans or whatever. And what is the difference between these religious orders? Well, there are some dimensions of our spirituality. Uh, Monks make a vow of stability, for example. So we live in a particular place and we uh, sanctify that place. And that place becomes also a sanctifying place. Other people come, make retreats here, visit here are involved in the life of our monastic community in some way and they are touched by god's grace through that process and it becomes sanctifying they become more holy through their their interactions but monks uh, live in a place franciscans are all over the place and do a lot of preaching and and movement around so different spiritualities in the church uh, have been developed by different saints throughout the last two thousand years of the church We also know that uh, different religious orders all make vows more or less of poverty, chastity, and obedience. That vow of obedience is a pretty interesting thing. And people will sometimes think about what that means. What does it mean to have a vow of obedience? Obedience to whom? And what are the limits on that? And what's that all about? And well, every religious order has some kind of governance structure. It has some structure of authority. And responsibility for the life of the community, and there's a just as our you know every every country has a governance structure, and our country famously has these three branches: executive, legislative, and judicial, and there are checks and balances. But the the framers of the Constitution had to make all that stuff up. I mean, there there's no uh, government tool kit creation. Mechanism—they they had to draw from from existing structures anyway. Uh, just as nations have governance structures, religious orders have governance structures, as companies and those sorts of things have governance structures. How do you get people into place? Well, we know we elect a president. We elect him for four years. He can be re-elected for one term. That's the head of the governance structure. He appoints several other elements underneath that. So, just getting people thinking about governance structures. How does the CEO come into power? Well, maybe he buys the company, creates the company, is elected by a board of directors. You could see there are a lot of different ways to do these things. How long does the CEO stay in power? Well, you know, maybe five years, maybe as a term, maybe he stays in as long as he wants to until he feels like resigning. You can make all those different kinds of decisions. Well, religious orders are similarly variable. And the way that they elect a governance structure, uh, the way that we can put laws into place, the ways that we uh, adjudicate different situations, we have to deal with all of that. All, all uh, kinds of freestanding societies of people need to have some structures like that. So in the case of uh, our, our Benedictine monastery, we elect an abbot. Abbot is just uh, related to the word father. Uh, Abba means father in uh, Hebrew. And so the Abbot is the father of the monastery. And he, St. Benedict has a fair amount of teaching about the Abbot, about his role. And he does have authority over the monks. We make our vow of obedience to the Abbot. And he has uh, quite a bit of leeway uh, for example, to say, I can't do this podcast anymore, then I can't do this podcast anymore, you know, just to make it real immediate. Uh, he has a fair amount of leeway in exercising that authority. Now, he's he has to do that in accord with divine law, divine authority, and he doesn't have all the power. He, he's also limited by church law and by the, the statutes in our congregation. For example, the statutes that govern our Benedictine congregations say that a monk can't be assigned outside of the monastery. So uh, for example, our Benedictines are in the diocese of Pittsburgh at the St. Francis Cabrini parish in Aliquippa. And the abbot cannot say to me, I want you to go and be pastor there. He can say that to me, but he can't force me. I have the right under law to say, no, I have, I want to be here at the monastery. You can't assign me outside of the house without my agreement, without my permission. It's not disobedient of me to say that, you know, so just a, a little example the the abbot does have limitations on his authority, but he has a lot of authority over the monastery. So uh, we really do look to him as a father in Christ. It's not about power plays and and working out authority issues and things like that. We look to him as a father in Christ and we trust in his discernment and he trusts in our discernment as well. I mean there there really isn't a kind of forceful application of authority uh, generally in, in monasteries in the modern day, more a little bit more dialogical. But at the end of the day, he makes the decisions and we do what he says, and we trust that God really works through that. And so it's it's a beautiful faith dimension of our life in a very concrete form. Uh, my faith says that it's Christ who's making this assignment. And I've seen with past our past abbot times that he told me to do things that I thought were, why would I want to do that? I'm not interested at all. Or times that I I really internally resisted and and was very skeptical, uh, even pushed back in some ways. And again and again, I could see the hand of God at work. Just amazing. So that really does happen. But how do you get an abbot is the question. I've told you a little bit about what an abbot is and what the stakes are. Again, I'm a I'm electing somebody, we're choosing somebody who has really, for all intents and purposes, total reign over my life. I mean, who can just stop everything that I'm doing and send me in a completely different direction. And as much as that wouldn't normally happen because we talk about it, it can happen. He has the authority to do that, and I made a vow that I would respond to it. So that's pretty high stakes in this decision. As Benedictines Because he's a father of the monastery, we also elect an abbot for a pretty long period of time. Uh, At the beginning of our monastery in 1846, the practice was all the way up until 1963, the practice was to elect the abbot for life. So the abbot until he dies would be abbot of our monastery. Now that changed in 1963. We revisited our constitutions after the Second Vatican Council and uh, we adjusted that. We now elect him to age 75. So it's like a bishop that way. Bishops are also required to resign at age 75. Uh, the Holy Father can keep a bishop on longer if he wants to, but the bishop is required to resign at 75. And likewise, we elect our abbot to age 75. It's possible for us to re elect him for eight years at a time, but he has to resign at age 75 and we have a new election. The abbot who just resigned, Archabbot Douglas Nowicki, had been our abbot for 30 years. So that's a long time to elect somebody and a pretty huge decision. Before, I've only been a monk for 20 years. 22 years. So, my entire time as a monk, I've only known one abbot. Uh, I've only been under obedience to one abbot, I should say. There's only been one abbot of St. Vincent, Arch Abbey. Uh, now, in this case, we ended up electing uh, Father Martin Bartle to be abbot till age 75. He's already 65. So, we're electing him for 10 years. We could potentially reelect him in 10 years for another eight years at a time. So it's possible we could keep sentencing him to be abbot till death. It is a huge responsibility to be the abbot, especially of a community of about 160 monks. There were 138 electors. So all monks in solemn vows get a vote. And then we have another 12, 15, 20 monks who uh, are in formation. And so it's a... It's a huge monastery. We're the largest Benedictine monastery in the world. And becoming the abbot of St. Vincent Arch Abbey is quite a uh quite a responsibility, a daunting task to say the least. So the process is uh in you know, we've known that Archabbot Douglas was turning 75. That wasn't a mystery. He turned 75 on May 8th. And so we've been preparing for this election for over a year just discussing what it means to be abbot and trying to think creatively about who could fulfill the requirements of of being abbot everybody knows that there's no archabbot douglas in this community other than archabbot douglas he is a uniquely talented individual who has done incredible things over the last 30 years that are really uh, impossible to to parallel uh, he's just built so much, developed so much, has just moved St. Vincent in uh, in big ways. So we knew we couldn't elect his uh, rightful successor, as it were, someone with all the same gifts and talents. But, you know, how do we, who could we elect? What's really necessary? What do we want to see in an abbot? Those kinds of things. We we started preparing uh, through small group meetings, through large community meetings, discussions, just to try and get all of that reflection flowing for us There's no campaigning, and really nobody wants to be the abbot, so uh, there was no focus on individuals or names, but really looking at the qualities of the office, about the nature of the community, about the challenges that confront us in more general terms, reflecting on uh, what it means to be abbot. We don't have primaries and, uh, and political debates and anything like that and and it would be in fact it's specifically forbidden to have any campaigning and so just in a very general way now we know the monks of our monastery and we know the people who have the capacity some certainly do not uh have the capacity to be the abbot of this monastery some do and so there's you know sort of a small pool of potential candidates in people's minds and we also discussed over the last year what do you think about this person? What do you think about this person? Just in an informal way, trying to get our ideas around uh, who might be the abbot. But then uh, we we enter into the abatial election, uh, and we started that Monday evening with nominations. Uh, so we actually come into a, it's a kind of conclave, it's a confidential setting. So I'm not going to, and I can't reveal any details about how that unfolded, but just the, the general process uh, because all of those who are in solemn vows, and that's, uh, if you remember from previous podcasts, a monk of our monastery makes solemn vows after basically four years in formation. So four years after entering the monastery, we're eligible for, for solemn vows. So all the monks who have been in for at least four years, have made solemn vows, are part of the monastic chapter, and the word for chapter in Latin is... Uh, Capitus or capit coming from the head. Caput uh, is the head. So the person who belongs to the chapter is called a capitular. Anyway, it's a funny word. Uh, but all of the capitulars gather together in the chapter to elect an abbot. And we begin with nominations. Every monk can make two nominations among the eligible members of the community. Who is eligible to become an abbot? Anybody. Who is a priest in solemn vows for at least eight years those are the requirements Uh, it's possible to try and do other things but that gets more complicated but those are the basic requirements anybody who's a priest and in solemn vows for eight years so then we make two nominations and uh, they they made a, a decision to cut off nominations at uh well basically to identify as candidates, anybody who got at least 10 nominations. So then among those who received at least 10 nominations, uh, or anyway, the next phase of the election is to go into what's called a scrutinium. That's again, a kind of funny Latin word related to scrutiny. We're going to evaluate or look closely at each of the candidates. And so, We enter into that period, starting with the one who got the most nominations down to the one who got the least nominations, and one at a time, those who are nominated leave the room, and the remaining monks talk about them. And uh, that's a process which uh, could, anyway, could yield interesting results, Um, you know, Generally, one would hope that in a monastic community with those who are professed to follow Christ to his love, you'd have very charitable discussions, honestly evaluating what the candidates are like and not arbitrarily throwing mud or making accusations. And, uh, you know, so uh, that can be a very fruitful, very beautiful process of of really seeing uh, one of the unique things about St. Vincent is we have uh, members of the monastery who have been out of the monastery who haven't been living here. And uh, Archabbot Martin Bartle is an example of that. He's been working in parishes recently, the pastor of St. Francis Cabrini in Aliquippa. Uh, he's been working in parishes for the last 20 years. And so I overlapped with him maybe two years in the monastery, and then he's been out in parishes ever since then um you know other other men have been living here but then we have our own parish fathers who have been out in parishes or who have been in foreign apostolates like Brazil and Taiwan who wouldn't necessarily know the men who are living in the monasteries so in some ways there's a process of getting to know the candidates uh through the scrutinium and so that forces us to talk about some of the details how have they done out in the parishes or what what are their responsibilities in the monastery, and how do they live those those out? And uh, those who work more closely, you know, uh, somebody who works in the college is going to work more, cl- you know, is going to be better known by others who work in the college. Someone who works in the seminary is going to be better known by others who work in the seminary. And so, those testimonies about the viability of different candidates for abbot are really enlightening they're really important for us to understand who these men are and and what qualities they have and whether they would make a good abbot also at this particular somebody who might make a good abbot abstractly may not make a good abbot right now at this point in history arch abbot douglas for all of his great gifts also obviously has sh- some shortcomings and we may very much want an abbot who kind of balances out some of his shortcomings Or we may want an abbot who really uh, has similar gifts and can move things forward in that way. So evaluating what the community needs and evaluating what the candidate has uh, also kind of go together in that process of scrutinium. And and a lot of that comes out in the discussion and and helps us kind of get a focus on who might be the best candidate at this point in time.
0: Yeah, so... Uh, obviously a fascinating process that you guys just went through Um, and and kind of thinking back through it. I remember you explicitly saying you didn't want to be the habit and, um, and and it makes it a little interesting in the fact that you said that you can't do campaigning. um, And I inferred that as meaning in the affirmative of trying to get the position. Um, Can you do it in the reverse as far as, removing yourself from contention i know that you guys said that when you did your nominees list you know my assumption by not campaigning is you didn't have the guy give a little spiel before he left the room you just left and then you guys said as as you would so my question is is are you permitted to to remove yourself from
1: from being an option um yeah that's a great Question: A a couple of uh, real nice observations there, Joe. The um, in in terms of you know, most of the time, somebody who is viable as a candidate for Abbott is uh, probably you know, unless there's a real impediment. You know, some some folks have you know, all of us have skeletons in the closet one way or another. Some have some kind of serious Things not not so serious that they should be in jail or something, but maybe serious enough that um, you know it could cause problems if things came out after the fact. That kind of that kind of thing, or for other reasons, maybe that they don't want to advertise. Somebody might not feel up to uh, being abbot. Um, so, uh, in terms of dissuading people from promoting them you know c- certainly anybody can do that uh now i would say anybody who wants to become abbot probably shouldn't be anyway i mean it's like <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about there's a there's a kind of willingness to take on a heavy yoke i think that's uh maybe the best we could ever do so but there is a uh, a man does not have to accept the position even if he's voted in and so what happens is after the nominations each of the nominees is asked, if you were elected, would you accept? And he can at that point say, no, I wouldn't. And so there's no reason to do the scrutiny for him. And so um, there there is that. And likewise, we could elect him anyway, even if he said, I don't want to do that. And in that case, we would actually, if he got a number of votes, we would stop the voting process and do the scrutiny anyway, because He's in the process of being elected. Now, if he were actually elected, he could again say, I don't want to do it. And that's the final say. So nobody is ever forced to be Abbott in, in our process. Um, but again, um, yeah, so uh, you, the candidate can always remove his name. The candidate can always you know, tell people not to vote for him or something like that uh, beforehand. That's certainly never a problem. Um, after after the nominees are identified and then after the scrutinium takes place and is finished, then the voting begins. And, uh, and there's no other formal discussion that takes place. We just start voting. Uh, the first three ballots, the person has to get two-thirds of the votes to be elected. So that's a pretty substantial, you know, with that, there were 138 electors, I think. And so uh, we need, somebody needed 92 votes from our community, which is a pretty, pretty big number in those first three ballots. Uh, after those first three ballots, then uh, we have three more ballots where you just need a 50%, you know, a simple majority. You have to get 50% of the votes plus one. And uh, so whatever that is, 60, 69 or something in, uh, in our case, or 70. So, uh, so it really forces the the community to to come together and and listen to each other and listen to the Holy Spirit. And then generally what happens if you have three, four, five, six candidates, even that uh, you know, maybe the first three ballots, it's you're you're sort of figuring out, well, kind of all the votes gather around these two candidates. And then there's some melt away from the other candidates and focusing on on those two. And then you almost certainly kind of narrow it down to two. And then in the last three ballots, you're almost certainly going to have an election uh, at that point. If for some reason you couldn't elect somebody in six ballots, then the process is delayed for another six months and an administrator is appointed. Uh, And that's an indication that there's a real division in the community. Uh, There's an unwillingness. To move toward one candidate or another, every some you know some group is set on this one, another group is set on this one, and nobody's budging. And probably to not even get f- over fifty percent, there has to even be a third candidate involved who's taking away some of the votes from that. And so if if that can't resolve itself, that's pretty serious. And and then the community really needs to do some work and understanding kind of where where the roadblock is in all of that. So. So overall, a very healthy process, or it should be for a healthy community, it's a very healthy process. I found it to be, it's very intense. You know, we uh gathered together basically Monday evening for several hours, and then Tuesday morning, Tuesday afternoon, we finished the scrutinium, uh, and then Tuesday afternoon, Tuesday evening we're voting, and uh and then finished the, the voting process with an election. And you really feel like you had a workout. And and I found it really useful because transitioning, you know, Arch Abbot Douglas is the only Abbot that I've known. And really making the transition, although mentally I started preparing a year or more ago, uh, going through that intense process, you know, the only thing I can compare it to is like, it felt Wednesday felt like Easter Sunday. You know, it was like I had been through the Triduum. Uh, the intensive liturgies of Holy Week, and then it's like you arrive after having done something on Easter Sunday, and there's a kind of f- opening up of uh, a, f- a fresh air. So uh, it really did help transition, and also help the community to come together to formulate a kind of vision. What we're getting from you know Archabon Martin, what we're seeing in him, and and hoping for from him. And now another process unfolds, which is Arch Martin gets to assign the monks however he wants to, you know, and so he's in a process now of assessing where St. Vincent is, where the needs might be. He certainly has to replace himself at Francis Cabrini uh, in, the, in the parish and then is going to be moving some people around, people who are ready to change positions, things like that. And so uh, we, we enter into another kind of intense period of, of discernment as he exercises his authority now as the abbot.
0: Yeah, and a, a couple of thoughts are are coming from that. And I think that having listened to this, I think that some people might be correlating how is this similar or different from when we elect the pope or when the, the cardinals elect the pope. And I think that the biggest difference that I'm getting between this is, is the size of the familiarity that you guys all have with each other you know, in the sense that the majority of you are living together there, um, you're staying in in this one place and you have familiarity. And I think that that's something that's different. And then obviously the the structural rules will be modified, certainly, but the the process of going through and and just saying, this is who we choose and why and having a a good orderly process to it, I think is, is very beneficial. And it certainly cannot help hurt the fact that you guys all are already priests. So the fact that you guys are able to sit down and have conversations um, that are you know, essentially starting from a point of faith is a lot different than if you look at something going through the primaries or, or, or a general election um, with the government and just how different the, that is. And I think also the fact that you guys aren't saying this is one vote forever and that you guys are revisiting it. And in a sense, it the structural element to that was similar to how um, how the various sports leagues elect their Hall of Famers. You have to have X percentage of, of the person to be able to get to the next level and then there's more scrutiny and then do they get in or not. Obviously, there's a lot more stakes involved, which gets to where you are saying about the intensity of thought. You know, voting for Darmani Dawson to be in the Hall of Fame versus being your habit are two very different things. You know, if if the left uh, left guard gets in the Hall of Fame, that doesn't necessarily affect your life ever again. Um, so I I I appreciate you letting us know. And and the thought that that was coming to me that you saying of how emotionally and mentally tired you were from it to me shows how important it was because I think all of us can relate to somewhere in our own lives when you know, you're just thinking, getting all emotionally enveloped, how, when it's over, how there's just a, just a exhaustion to it. You know, some people will get that going through a, fu- uh, you know, through a funeral type situation. Um, people will get through it just crying to cram for finals, you know, in all various things to take the, the emotional and the kind of mental extremes there. So I, I definitely appreciate you sharing with this. And I'm sure it's something that has a lot of people out there thinking about and, and, and the other part of it that I wanted to mention is you said in there something I thought was very important. If it's a job that you want, you probably shouldn't have it. And I think that there's a lot of things out there that people just want to have power for the sake of power. And oftentimes that's not – going to yield you the right person, uh, regardless of what the committee is. And I think that you see that a lot with, at least I do a lot with small governments, you know, the guy who really, really wants to be president of the PTA is probably the last guy you should have picked type deal. And, um, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of emphasis on thinking that through and, and doing the discernment in prayer. As I can imagine, you guys had many masses to sit down and think about this. As you've mentioned, you've been thinking about this for a year. It's had to creep in your mind at least once or twice sitting in front of uh, the tabernacle there. So I don't want to take up the last comments here. I want to give you a chance to conclude um, today's episode.
1: Thanks, Joe. And uh, great points. You're you're right on the mark in thinking about those uh, different comparisons. I'll just make a quick comment that most other religious orders only elect a man for a period of time like 6 years and in contrast when we elect an abbot it's till age 75 and then he also retains that blessing so i re- still refer to archabbot douglas uh he he will always be an abbot he's blessed as an abbot and that's really a lifelong designation Um, I don't my vow of obedience has transferred now to the new abbot, but he still uh, has the dignity of the office that he carries. So it's it's a very big deal. And this is something that makes us kind of uniquely Benedictine. It's a a kind of monastic thing as opposed to Dominicans or Franciscans or Jesuits who would elect for a period of time, a little bit more like the presidency where you have a term of office. And, uh, you know, and that would be a, a more distinctive period of time. And then I would just say, please pray for Arch Abbot Martin. He's really got a big job ahead of him. And uh, I think he's a, a great man. And I'm really grateful uh, for how the, the election turned out. As I said, I didn't know him as well. I got to know him in part through the scrutinium. And of course, I got to know him from people that I really trust and know, uh, people that I have lived with for 20 years and I'm very close with. And of course, I knew him when he was here together with me, and I have had some interactions with him over the last 20 years. But, um, you know, I really uh, I think highly of him, and I'm grateful that the Lord gave him to us as our abbot, but he certainly needs a lot of prayer. So I already promised him of my prayer, and I'll promise him of our uh, our listeners' prayers as well. Well, we certainly will do that, and in- to all our listeners out there,
0: we thank you for listening. We thank you for continuing to tell your friends about it as we're growing and the numbers each week reflect that. So we thank you guys for being with us and we'll be with you again next week.